0: word on this. Yes, it is. All right. So here we are. Uh, Judith It's our third. Uh, I guess it's our third class in Judith. I want to just kind of review the overall uh, where we are in the story, um, you know, just because sometimes not everybody's here every week, but also we can all forget. Um, so we see that, you know, it's interesting. Judith herself doesn't really appear until about the middle of the book. All right. But what we see is that, you um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, uh, who was called the ruler of Babylon, but but rather, um, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, ruler of Assyria, but was really the, the ruler of Babylon, although there's some debates about that. Um, you know, Babylon and Assyria, I mean, um, you know, it, it was conquering back and forth, and the expansion of the Assyrian kingdom and the Babylonian kingdom went back and forth a little. <laughs> but <laughs> I think And you might remember when we studied the book of Daniel, there are some definite anomalies if we really hold that he's uh, this is the very same Nebuchadnezzar and um, and so on. So I think what we have to presume is that this book is sort of told in broad terms, like, for example. um, You know, we of course, he's a totally mythical figure, Darth Vader, but, you know, we all can refer to, you know, that so and so is such a Darth Vader. Or um maybe um you know, um to use a figure from history. unfortunately, this is done too much today, where we argue that someone someone else that we don't like uh, is Hitler. Or, <laughs> oh, you're like Hitler, you know. And so there may be some of that here, you know, that Nebuchadnezzar is being used as a figure of uh of, of fearsomeness and of uh Uh, military cruelty and and so on so again we'll just leave it for what it is Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler and um he conquered um um I'm sorry he had conquered Jerusalem they they they'd been in exile from about 587 to 562 over in Babylon and now had just recently come back and this we focused in little by little on this town of Bethulia but um Bethulia is enduring a a month-long siege by Nebuchadnezzar's army, angered that the people of not just the Holy Land, but Persia and Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and Egypt had refused his call for assistance when he went to war against the Medes. Um, And um, Nebuchadnezzar had dispatched his army commander, Holofernes, on a punitive mission to the west. And this huge force was like a swarm of locusts like dust of the earth like a multitude that couldn't be counted <laughs> and they marched forward ravaging these countries through which they passed so when Holofernes approached their lands the israelites prepared to resist him um and uh, and and you know by by preparing you know by, by guarding the narrow passes leading into judea from the judean desert um so uh this is kind of where we're going to pick up the story all right but we saw that um uh Holofernes had been dispatched on this, on this terrible you know, mission to just really chew up the place and spit it out. Uh, and when I say the place, I mean, think of it in your mind, think of um, most all of uh, Saudi Arabia, what is Arabia today, most of um, uh, uh, Iraq uh, and Iran, uh, the, the nation today of Syria. Uh, think also coming down, you have Lebanon. Um, and um, all those regions have been, you know, conquered by him. And you know, the, the the Medes, uh, I'm sorry, the um, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, all these very formidable foes to Israel are just being wiped out, uh, which is just another way of sort of magnifying this war machine. And so it's told in epic terms that are that are almost unbelievable. Because remember, uh, in a long, long uh, galaxy, uh, say a long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, you know, I mean, the uh, the terms are very exaggerated. Huge army, huge supplies, uh, just un, un, you know, uh, unbeatable. And so, this idea of being up against a formidable foe that you can't possibly match in terms of force—you're just not going to. That is not going to happen. And that's, again, as we, as we start to look at spiritual warfare, this is very often our experience. I mean, we're arrayed against, you know, as St. Paul says, our, our battle isn't against each other, flesh and blood. It's against principali- principalities and powers in very high places, principalities of darkness in very high places um, arrayed against us. Um, you know, how are you going to go against an army of Satan? Uh, so, it, 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 So as I say, this is the the terrifying thing that's before us of course we're not alone we we have the lord um but again just to paint the picture of feeling at times overwhelmed and realizing that without without god we can't we don't stand a chance okay now another thing though that we we learn um is that um you know as as the story unfolds is that um um you know the um the um some of those towns and cities uh, in Lebanon and other places sued for peace. In effect, they threw up the white flag. They said, look, we're going to give you just about all our wealth, um, but don't, don't utterly destroy us. You know, let us live in our land and let us continue to till the land and, you know, let, you know, let us live. And so again, um, um, in a, in a, in a, in an earthly war, this may be an option, but I, I want to say to you that in a spiritual war, It cannot be an option. Um, Compromise, uh, negotiations with the world, uh, you know, and then Satan gets you nowhere. And so we see in this story that those very towns and nations and places that sort of sued for peace and promised uh, they'd be goody two shoes from now on if they wouldn't be utterly destroyed were destroyed anyway. And here's the lesson that Satan. And this world will never, ever be satisfied until every last ounce of your integrity is gone and you belong wholly and entirely to them. To quote another Star Trek or another science fiction thing, Star Trek here, the next generation. uh, Remember the the Borg, kind of big square kind of Death Star. And, you know, um, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. (laughs) All right. So You don't compromise with the Borg. You know, you're either dead or you you become one of them. You know, and and so the point is, since we look to the life beyond this world, we cannot entertain this idea of, of compromise um, or negotiation. And yet, that's exactly and for and unfortunately, what most Christians, Catholics have done in down through the ages, but in this re- most recent time of our lives in this cultural revolution, we stayed very silent. We sort of sued for peace. We said, I don't want to get into trouble. We, we've we been too quiet. We've we've compromised. We've made room for error and sin. Now, some, many of you are older than I am and you can remember a day when it was considered shocking and disgraceful for someone to live together outside of marriage or when it was considered not, not to say it never happened or that there was never a child born before we wedlock. But it wasn't something that people considered, um, you know, a good thing. And it was considered disgraceful. Um, now, uh, of course, we're all settled down with that now. Oh, yeah, you know how it is today. You know, We hardly even raise an eyebrow. And that's in a very short period of time. I'm only 62. So you see what I'm saying? This is uh, th- There was a time when divorce was shocking, when we didn't. Think that men could have babies. That's only like five, six years ago. I say we in the collective sense. I hope none of you think men can have babies. Um, but, you know, again, they, they, they kind of just sort of sh- settle down and, you know, feeling overwhelmed and let's just compromise, let's go along and um, just hope we don't get killed or lose our job, you know, is very, very common. And this is, of course, the great spiritual struggle. Now, what we're gonna start with tonight is though that there is one nation that does stand up and resist. Uh, They prepare for war, and that is Israel. Israel will not sue for peace, they are preparing for war. And this is an image then of what we all ought to be. Now, I'm not saying the Jewish people, the Israelites did this perfectly all the time either, but in our story here, They represent what can only be our stance when it comes to resisting and defying the world and the prince of this world who is Satan himself. And that is to say we simply must prepare for war. It is a war and we must, with Jesus, win the war. We may find like, oh, I've only got five loaves and two fishes, but what good is that for so many people? Well, Jesus says, bring me your five loaves and two fishes and let's get started. But so you see, this, these are some spiritual lessons that we've been kind of looking at and uh, we're, you know, pondering here. Now then, um, tonight let's begin by uh, a quick review of chapter three, which I think we finished last week. It's a very short chapter, and we may have begun for maybe just a couple lines into it, but I think then we're gonna we're gonna go there. So go to chapter three of Judith. And,
1: um,
0: yeah, all right. <clears throat> now, um, I'm going to just quickly read sections of it here, chapter three, and then we'll, we'll, we'll spend a little more time going through uh, chapter four and into five. So they, these these um, nations um, that I mentioned to you, other than Israel, sent messengers to the general Holofernes to sue for peace saying, look, we're we're the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, and we lie prostrate. And uh, we ask you, see all of our dwellings in our land, our wheat fields, our flocks, our herds, and all of our encampments are at your disposal. Make use of them. Um, Our cities, our inhabitants are at your service. Come and deal with them as you see fit. But basically, just don't kill us. And let us remain a vassal nation and continue to, you know, eke out a living here. You know, that's kind of what they're saying. So, Holofernes is given this message, and he went, but then it says he he went down to these seacoast you know areas and stationed garrisons and he um um and again they um they received him it says here verse seven look at this tell me if this doesn't sound like a pride parade they greeted him with garlands and dancing and the sound of timbrels hmm? uh, now look at that now I I don't mean to pick on this is not just uh to say well just it's just the gay community. But this whole idea, imagine, pride is not a good thing. Now, sometimes you can say, I take pride in my work or whatever, but but pride is a very ugly sin, and yet some people march under these banners of being proud of and at taking pride in what God has described as not just sinful, but as an abomination, certain activities. Now, look, um, this isn't just true about that type of sinful activity, but you know, what if we started having parades of people walking, running around saying, well, I think child abuse is great. So they started taking pride in that. But you see, we just sit around and kind of tolerate this. But in, in a way, Satan barges into our family, into our notions of sexuality and so on. And we sue for peace and we even celebrate. And we go on, you know, we cheer on the pride parade and or we come to the, you know, pride, uh, pride day, things at work and we don't we don't, you know, we just show up uh, and, you know, uh, we don't raise any, we kind of, you know, as I say, sue, we sue for peace. So again, now what is the result? Look at verse seven. Um, well, they, they, they're all having, there's like a parade. They're, they're receiving the, the general holofernes with garlands and dancing to the sound of timbrels. Um But verse eight, he devastated their whole territory. And cut down their sacred groves. Mm. So again, um, um, they and he would not be satisfied until they invoked Nebuchadnezzar as a god. Mm. Again, listening one more time. Compromise negotiation with Satan and with his world is not. I can't be an option. Because they will not be satisfied until every last ounce of your integrity. You know, it's one thing, you know, to to lose our bodies, but to lose our souls, to save our bodies. Again, Jesus says, what, what can you ever, what price can a man pay if he gained the whole world and yet still lose his soul? It's not worth it. It is not worth it. Your soul and where you're going to spend eternity and whether you negotiate and compromise with evil or not are essential things that you just can't compromise. And yet most of us do, and most of us are quite willing to do it. I say most of us, I don't mean everybody here, but I'm just saying, if you look at the big picture, most of the mainline Protestant churches are completely settled down with a completely immoral modern regime, morally speaking. Um, and um, weak Catholics have become strangely silent. And there's a, unfortunately uh, our, our Pope and others have permitted a wide degree of dissent uh, from important moral issues, all for what? I don't know. What what, what are you going to get out of this? You know, you you might get a little popularity among the woke left, but you're you're basically they're not going to be satisfied, and you're going to go to hell if you just get settled down with this stuff and go along and start to agree with it. So again, it it, it is not possible, and and even if you do it, as this text shows us. The general Sisgus comes in and wipes out everything, rapes your women while you look on, and puts you in slavery, and um, you're 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 toast. And I pardon the you know kind of fierce image I gave you there, but you know raping and pillaging, which was a common thing, was it was an awful, awful, awful thing in ancient warfare, and, and to some degree still today. Where you know invading troops don't just come in and say, "Okay, this is ours now," and they they don't and they set up a government. No, they rape the women and the they and the children while their men look on. They kill most of the men. Uh, they take the women and children as basically slaves. And um, all your house, everything, it's all theirs now. And uh, this is very very ugly, you see. And um, so all of this is presented to us, again, as a, a, as a kind of a stark reminder that compromise with this world and Satan isn't an option. They're still going to completely destroy you. Right. And by the way, let me clarify when I say the world. You know, I don't mean the, the, the beautiful green trees and the rolling hills and the mountains and things, you know, the things that God made. Um, in that sense, God saw the world and it was very good. Likewise, the, the world could mean like the, the place just where we live. But fundamentally in the word, the Bible, the word world represents all those forces and attitudes and, and political views and, and, and philosophical views and whatever views that are arrayed against God and his teachings and the kingdom of heaven. And this is very, very widespread. It always has been, but especially today, it's very out in the open, and there's a huge, huge number of people who are now very arrayed and aligned with things that are that the scriptures teach us are sinful and wrong. And it isn't just sex stuff. It's greed. It's power. It's, it's the u- raw use of power. Uh, it sins against life, sins against the family, sins against tradition and authority, uh, understood as, as God's authority, and so on. So... Um, it is a very, we, we have seen a cultural revolution in our lifetimes and, um, for most of us, we've just kind of gone along with it and made a way. And not only have we not questioned a lot of it, but we've actually agreed with it. In fact, there's a, a doctor, um, what's her name? Um, anyway, she's a, she's the, um, uh, president of the ruth institute um, anyway she says most of us she says my age and she's she's like i am she's in her early 60s she says most of us my age were both victims and perpetrators of the sexual revolution <laughs> and every other revolution the feminist revolution the revolution against authority uh the revolution you know against uh, um you know uh, i guess say tradition and, and so on so um and many have um been on both sides frankly and um okay all right so uh the hope there so there's there's a hoped for compromise and they give up much in exchange for their lives and some of the remaining goods but it's for naught since they will be utterly ruined and in terms of spiritual warfare just note this as i've said compromise with this world and the, and, the, and its prince satan is not a viable solution and israel will step forward with that understanding okay now, that then leads us to chapter four, okay? <clears throat> so I think we started it, but I just want to uh, go ahead and restart it again today, all right? Now, um, let's see. I'll go ahead and read, all right? Um, so chapter four, when the Israelites who lived in Judea heard all that Holofernes, he's, he's the general, the ranking general of Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Assyrians, had done to the nations and how he had looted all their shrines and utterly destroyed them, they were in great, very great fear and greatly alarmed for, for both Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord their God. And now they had only recently returned from exile, and all the people of Judea were just now reunited, and the vessels and the altar and the temple had been purified from profanation. So they sent word to the whole, re- to, they sent word to the whole region of Samaria, to Kona, Beth, Haran, uh, Bellamine, Jericho, Jobah, es- 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 Esoram, and to the Valley of Salem. These people there were, uh, seg- were, were were told to secure all the high hilltops and fortify the villages on them since their fields had recently been only recently been harvested, and they were to store up provisions in preparation for war. Okay, well, what about compromise? What about going along? Come on, can't we find a middle ground? Can't we all just get along? See? Okay. So we saw how that worked. Okay? Now, we have to then see, no, this is this is time for war, all right? And remember, I'm arguing with you that this book is a very good paradigm for spiritual warfare. Sp- not spiritual negotiations. Not let's have a diplomatic corps formed and go and, you know, it, this is about winning in a battle, okay? Okay. Joachim, who was high priest in Jerusalem those days wrote to the inhabitants of Bethulia, uh, Bethosmiah, and the Esdrelon facing the plain near Dothan, and instructed them to hold firm the mountain passes since these offered access to Judea. But it would be easy to stop those advancing troops as the approach was only wide enough for two at a time. The Israelites carried out orders given them by Joachim, the high priest. And the Senate and of the whole people in Israel in in session in Jerusalem. Now, uh, by the way, this is a little bit of an exaggeration to say only it was only two people wide. There were a number of passes through the mountains. There's a whole if 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 some of you've been to the Holy Land, you remember. Think of Jerusalem; it's up on a mountain mountain uh, up in the mountaintops. When I say mountaintop, we're talking about. Um, about 2,000 2, feet above sea level. So some of our Appalachian mountains get kind of height. Okay, like if you were to go out to like Emmitsburg, like some of us did the other day, th- those are that's the height of the mountains. And Jerusalem is on top of one of them, and and below there is a very deep desert valley called the Judean Desert. And in order to get up into Jerusalem, you have to get cut through these mountains to get up there. And there's only certain narrow, as there are with mountains. There's often little passes and things that are cut through. And so the best thing is we can't defend the whole thing. This army's too big, but we can block the entrances and do our best to hold them, hold them down in the, in the bowl of the desert there. OK, and so that's the plan. So they don't just say, well, to war. They do have a plan. All right. Now, um, again, let's see here now in chapter four, um, before we read on, that the, the Jewish people are contrasted to the surrounding pagan nations, who all capitulate, um, and then are completely wiped out. Um, Though incredibly outnumbered, the Jewish people here um, uh, and only recently returned, um, they have recourse to prayer, and they begin to develop a military strategy that makes use of their strengths. Now, let's just stop right there. How about you? How about me? Most Christians, most Catholics have no sense that they're at war today. They're just trying to hack it on Monday. There's no sense that you are in a spiritual war or that I am, and that we just we, and, and therefore that we need to have a strategy. Do you have a strategy to get to heaven? I'm gonna to try to be nice. Really? And how's that working? You know, being nice. See. Um again, where it's all very vague and you know, okay, so here's here's some things. So they 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 want to make use of their strengths, namely they got these narrow mountain passes. And I want to talk about what those mountains and passes represent in just a minute. But what they, they have a they have a, a strategy in mind. And the strategy is look, let, we, you know, let's make use of these things are, and make use of our strengths. Well, now you and I are up against an immense army of Satan uh, and all of his minions and, and also his fellow demons, and we uh, are outnumbered. But what do we have well what are our strengths well we have jesus <laughs> hello we have sacraments we have the word of god we have recourse to prayer uh, we have recourse to the virtues which god offers us um again we ought to have a plan each of us as individuals but also as a church to say look we are going to study god's word we're going to stay close to it we're going to try our very best to obey it and when we fall short we're going to go to confession we're going to get to mass we're going to pray together. We're going to raise up our families in God's teachings and in the fear of the Lord. And if we do this, we will be strong. And this is the strategy to go up against Satan, to stay close to the Lord through, again, our devotions, our prayers, our, the recourse to the saints, um, the sacraments, and so on. All the things I just said to you, okay? Do most Catholics, even priests, talk about this? Now, hopefully, if you've been coming to my masses, you know, you've heard me. Look, I said, come on, there's four pillars of the Christian life. You know, make sure you've got them up and running. You know, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There's your scripture, to the breaking of the bread. That's the Eucharist, and by extension, all the sacraments. They devoted themselves also to prayer, both communal and private, and to holy fellowship. So, again, they raised each other. They, 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 they had recourse to these things. And like I said, I, just to broaden it out a bit, sacraments. Prayer, the word of God, studying the catechism, doing the things we're doing now, sitting at God's feet, listening, growing strong, obeying his word. See? That's that's the pattern. Now, we're going to see that one of their enemies realizes that this is what keeps the Israelites strong. Um, and if we, can, if we have any ability to beat them, we're going to have to weaken their attachment to their God. And we'll see that in a moment. But you see, what are our strategies? They, they are now, they say, we're at war. I, we need a strategy. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about the image of the mountains for a moment. Uh, Jerusalem, the mountains surround her. So the Lord surrounds his people. I'm quoting from one of the Psalms. Jerusalem, the mountains surround her. So the Lord surrounds his people. Now, therefore... You and I, uh, what do these mountains represent? Well, they are the barrier between us and Satan and the prince of this world and this world. And we ought to have a mountain that surrounds it. What is the mountain? It's the mountain. Well, I would say one of the ways of describing it is that um, we're inside the protection of God's commandments, his way of life, um, inside the sacraments, inside the protection that God offers. Uh, and they're, they're, they're like Jerusalem surrounded by the mountains. So we are surrounded by the Lord. Now, every ancient city had walls and, and, um, these, um, uh, these ancient cities, you know, uh, inside the city at night, they would lower the gates and all could be safe, but outside the city walls, all bets are off. See, so you stay inside the city walls, inside that perimeter of protection, and you're going to be relatively safe. Outside, all bets are off in fact, there's brigands, there's other armies there's all kinds of bad stuff going on, even little towns that couldn't afford to put up walls had night watchmen and you know people who kept watch through the night you You just didn't go to bed like we do, you know they didn't have settled governments. it was all lovely and pretty. the countryside you know, a police force like we do, you know you just had to have walls and uh and warnings and um uh and so on so again. Think then of these mountains as a barrier between us and the enemy, namely Satan, and those he has inspired to join his cause, all right? Now, what are the mountain passes? Well, Jesus says, look, you know, um, you're in the world, but not of the world. That is to say, you're going to, we're going to have to have some truck with this world. We need food. We need clothing, shelter. We need in some ways uh, to, you know, to get the basic things we need. But those mountain passes should be narrow. And very well guarded. So if you have truck with the world, so to speak, if you have some interaction with the world that we all must, we can't just live in a little isolation chamber. Um, if you have some truck with this world, you know keep those passes passages back and forth uh, between the mountain, uh, keep them small and narrow and well guarded. Now, again, is that how we live, you know? Remember how Jesus talked about the sheep who would only hear their master's voice? And not only would they not follow a stranger's voice, but they would run from him. You know, now, is that what we do? Hardly. In fact, we don't just listen to the enemy. We pay him. We pay the cable bill. We we pay for the music. We pay for the, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, ways that uh, he can just get plugged into our head. Um. And again, I'm not saying you you can just live in a cocoon, but again, do you have uh, filters and barriers set up so that you're not just listening to any stupid thing? It is amazing what we will listen to. And not only will we not run from these voices that are different than our shepherd, but we'll say, "Uh uh-huh, tell me more. And we sing his songs and we repeat his bromides, you know, this kind of stuff. So Um, again, we, um, we have all of these, um, you know, we, you know, you, you hear some of the things that people repeat, uh, like, um, uh, well, you know, like when people, uh, want want the church just to welcome sin in every aspect. Doesn't the Bible say come as you are? No, it doesn't. It does not say come as you are. It says repent and believe the good news. And yet we just go on and recite this stuff unreflectively because, oh, it sounds lovely. And remember, the, the devil will come to us in sheep's clothing. But, but again, so the idea here is that look, think of these mountains. That's what's protecting Israel from the enemy. And there do need to be some mountain passes. We all need some connections with the world, but keep those passages narrow and well guarded. Okay. So uh, enough said on that. But uh, we want to we want to see that. And let's just look a little bit more. Um, as um, um, they're not going to defeat this army by raising an equally big army, they don't have those resources. So what they're going to have to engage in is, I guess, what you'd call in in military strategy. At least they used to call it guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla doesn't mean like gorilla, big big animal. Guerrilla is spelled G- I forget how it's spelled, like G E U G E E R, you know, gorilla. It means like basically small little tactical. Armies. Notice again, how did we get defeated in Vietnam? See, we had this big war machine, but they defeated us because they knew the the region. They, 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 um, they had a small little tactical thing, the tunnels of Cu the, the, uh, Chi, they, they, they tunneled, they hid from us. Uh, they were very good at just, you know, inflicting death by a thousand cuts. And um, it's it what's happening right now in Ukraine, it would seem. Uh, that these Ukrainians are vastly outnumbered by the, by the uh, Russian army, but they're just these small tactical things that just go around and inflict damage and uh, just really drive the Russians crazy. And this is, again, how you do it. So, again, we have what we do have, and let's make use of it, let's prepare for war, and let's make use of the things that we do have. All right. So... What is another strategy that we need to have? What's another Well, is, is, is it not to love the world or its ways? We are to set up that mountainous barrier. Okay. So, any comments or questions on this so far? We're going to go now into verse nine in just a moment, but any, anyone want to add or uh, make um, some observations here? I think most of us can see that um, we have uh, the vast majority of. Christians and Catholics, you know, don't have any sense that they're at war. Don't have really have a real strategy. I just kind of want to hopefully one day go to heaven. Hopefully, maybe like I hope. And uh, we have to be less vague. You know, we're at war. And um, do you have a strategy? You know, what's your goal in life? I want to die loving God and my neighbor so I can go home and be with God and my neighbor forever. In a, in a beautiful place called paradise you know but you see the idea so just ask you to ponder that in your life look our minds are very weak and we're in a very very powerful culture that has incredible ways of reaching us even in our sleep and um so again just something to think and pray about. okay what are your mountains and to whatever mountain passage you need what, how are you guarding them how about your kids and your grandkids okay all right um moving on to verse nine so uh, now they, they have recourse to prayer it says all the men of israel cried out to god with great fervor and they humbled themselves and they along with their wives and children and domestic animals and every resident alien hired worker and purchased slave girded themselves with sackcloth and all the Israelite men and women and children and who lived um, in um, Jerusalem fell prostrate in front of the temple. They sprinkled ashes upon their heads and spreading out their sackcloth before the Lord. The altar too, they draped in sackcloth. Um, i not quite sure how they can do that. It's a fiery altar, but uh, a little puzzling there. Um, and with one accord, they all cried out fervently to the God of Israel not to allow their children to be seized and their wives to be taken captive and the cities of their inheritance to be ruined, or the sanctuary to be profaned, and that's to say the temple, and mock for the nations to gloat over. Um, Now notice again, verse 13, the Lord heard their cry and um, saw their distress. The people continued fasting for many days throughout Judea, and before the sanctuary of the Lord God Almighty in Jerusalem. Also girded with sackcloth, Joachim the high priest, and all the priests in attendance, before the Lord and all those who minister to the Lord, offering the daily burnt offerings and votive offerings um, with ashes upon their heads and turbans, they cried out to the Lord with all their strength to look with favor on the whole house of Israel. But this might remind you a little bit of what the Ninevites when Jonah said 40 days more Nineveh will be no more. You know, that's, um... now notice here. <laughs> I'm here we go again. I'm going to shame all of us again. But notice again here that they combine prayer with fasting. Fasting is something very few of us are willing to do today. All right. We might do a little bit of crying out to God, um, but sacrifice by fasting and other forms of abstinence is even better. <laughs> Jesus taught at one point that certain kinds of demons and foes are only driven out by prayer and fasting. So how serious are we um, how serious are we when, um, you know, when, when it comes to prayer? Are we willing to fast? When and how, you know? Now, look, um, I um, most of you who know, I'm not so good with food. I, I, I have a disordered relationship, apparently, with food. Um, by the way, I've lost 10 pounds in the last month. Aren't you happy? Aren't you proud of me? But, I got, go. but I got a long way to go. All right. Now, but anyway, all that said, um, you know, fasting, it's amazing to me. Think about this for a minute. Um, We live in times of incredible plenty. Food is available, not just available in abundance, but it's available in great variety and diversity. Now, go back even just 100 years ago in this country in the 1920s. There was a season for strawberries. And when the season was not there, then the strawberries just weren't in the store. I mean, you say you go to the store today and there's no strawberries. You say, Well, what's this world coming to? I can't buy strawberries. What? Or there was a season for tomatoes and other things. And when it wasn't the season for tomatoes, well, I guess no tomatoes. Now we just import everything from all over the world and things are available all the time. So we have not only do we have abundance of food, but we have an incredible diversity of food. Now, um, Likewise, um, think about go go back. Let's go back a little further. Let's go back to say I don't know. um, Let's just say we're somewhere in Europe in the year seventeen hundred or something like that. Just to pick a number, people in those days, when Lent came, Catholics throughout the world gave up all meat and all meat products, dairy, eggs, butter, no meat. For in in fact, the very word carnival means Bye-bye to meat, carne, carne, carnus, meat, and then vale, bye-bye. So the word carnival, or for Fat Tuesday, you'd use up the last meat and fat in the household, and for 40 days, you didn't have that stuff. Now, they, they didn't have a lot of substitutes in their diet for protein. You know, like today, for example, if I if I you know didn't have any meat or whatever, you'd just go get some peanut butter or something. You know, there's other sources of protein They didn't have that kind of variety in their diet in medieval Europe, Um, especially if there was some famine or in the cold winter months, food became kind of scarce. And yet they were engaging in fasting. And we, who have so much abundance and options, can hardly, oh, we we can hardly even pull off a a fast once or twice a year. And and even then, it's so pathetic. Think about uh, the the church's rule on, I'm going to put fasting in quotes. Oh, on your days of fast, you can eat two smaller meals that don't add up to a larger meal, and then you can have a large meal. Is that, do you call that a fast? You know, come on. Now, you know, I don't, there's different ways of fasting, you know, some people, you know, and give up food and all food for several days or something, or, or then like the, the, the Muslims, they had the, uh, the sun up to sundown fast, you know, and, um. Then there's different ways. But again, the idea is that there's even today, not because of any spiritual thing, I can assure you, but because of, you know, diet and losing weight and all this stuff. There's something called intermittent fasting. Is that what it's called? Or you, you anyway. So all of these things, but they, they largely escape us and we don't do them well. And it's funny, the more abundant our food, the harder it seems to be for us to fast. Now, again, go back with me in your time machine from today back to let's say 1900. If you were gonna receive communion, you had to fast from midnight. So that um, um, you 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 wouldn't have anything to eat or drink after midnight, and then you go to mass and receive communion. Um, Then in the 1950s uh, Pope Pius X, I mean 12th I think, reduced it to three hours. And then Paul VI reduced it to one hour before communion, which is really no fast at all. You know, you might as well just get in your car and go to church. You know, Um, most masses, you know, if you get there a little early, you you won't have communion in an hour. You know, you'll be away from food for an hour. So the point is that uh, it's it's become almost non-existent in, in the Western Roman Rite Church. Now, the Eastern Rites is different. They do give up all dairy products, everything during all 40 days of Lent. Uh, They still have some pretty beefy fasting and abstinence that goes on. Now, I'm not just saying all this to shame us, but think about this. Part of their strategy was to combine prayer with fasting. Well, what is fasting? It's a form of sacrifice. And you say to God when you make a sacrifice, I'm serious about this. You know, I'm willing to stop putting food in this hole in my face for a period of time because I'm serious, you know, I'm, I'm. this is something I'm very concerned about. And I, I'm not just gonna pray, I'm gonna make sacrifices like fasting or abstinence. And um, do you always have to pray that way? No, I mean, it wouldn't even be healthy. But the point is that it's a way of showing that this is something I'm very serious about. So let me give you some examples. Someone will come to me and say, well, uh, Father, uh, I, I raised my kids Catholic. Um, I um, went to send them to Catholic school. Uh, I, I think I did all the right stuff and now they don't go to church. I say okay. And well, I says, um, I, you know, I know you're probably praying for their return. Have you thought about fasting? Uh, re, fa- really father? Uh, fasting. Oh, uh, they start to get nervous because again, that's going to involve getting really serious, you know, for a little bit, you know, now, again, may, may not be what the person is called to do, but I'm just trying to say that do we even think of this today? See, that we're at war. And sometimes, you remember how, well, most of us aren't old enough to remember World War II, uh, but we certainly have read our history books. There were all kinds of rationing. You couldn't buy this, you couldn't, you had to turn in all the steel, all the aluminum you could find. And there was just a lot of stuff that went unavailable because we were at war. And um, you had certain days you could buy certain things and other days, not so much. And uh, so, again, this is what happens when nations and people go to war. Uh, You make sacrifices. And do we ever even think like this today? You see the idea? Um, So that, um, you see, part of the problem, I think, today is that we sort of turn religion into sort of a therapeutic thing. It makes me feel better. Um, I you know I'm consoled. Okay, well, and it can it can have that point of view, but um, it's it, good. Religion also challenges us, calls us to fasting and prayer, calls us to being giving up sins, uh, fighting to fighting to get free of certain sins and addictions and whatever, uh, to engage a battle and so if it but we've sort to turn religion today mostly into a therapeutic thing and most of you know i go around the country um preaching retreats for priests you know a couple times a year and likewise even bishops and and um i said to all of them i said you know i don't think fathers we have prepared god's people for martyrdom but mm-hmm. it's, it's getting it's getting really ugly now and um we're gonna. It, it's going to get tough. That it's really going to get tough as we go forward. Um, that we're going to have to ask people if we're, they're going to be serious about this to make real sacrifices, and we haven't prepared them for this. We just haven't. And we ourselves are not very prepared for it. You know, we priests. Frankly, we priests live very well. You know, all my needs are taken care of. You know, I have health care. You know, food, shelter, clothing. You know, I even get a salary on top of that. Not a lot of money, but heck. You know, how many of you have $30,000 of disposable income? You know, we clergy live very, very well. See, I would say to God, if you're going to bring a great chastisement on the world, would you take me out in the initial blast? <laughs> because I, I don't think I can live without running water and air conditioning and electricity. I can't hunt. I hate to kill things. I can't hunt for my own food. I, I, I don't, you know. Anyway, I'm, I'm a weenie. So I'm not saying, hey, you all are this bad, and I'm over here looking great. No, I'm saying that this is what our culture has produced. We're very soft. Sacrifice seems obnoxious to us, even small sacrifices. And um, we're not really prepared for the kind of suffering that might have to come to us if we're really going to engage this battle. You know, Jesus says, now look, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, and I've called you out of it, the world's going to hate you. You know, the world doesn't just stand by and go along while we say, well, I don't know about that. I say, oh, you don't. So first, just ridicule that we're just stupid. You're backwards. You know, you are reading that old dusty book again, aren't you? Oh, you silly fool. But then when they when that, they're finished with that little stage, they begin to marginalize us. You can't pray in this place. No more prayer in public places. Don't wear your religious emblems. You can't bring your Bible into this public school. You can't wear that shirt um and and then they start to criminalize us you know you won't take photographs at the a gay wedding well you know you're gonna be we'll see you in court bake me a cake you bigot and so they start to criminalize us and then you know he goes from there there are places right now in canada where there are people in jail because they mispronounce somebody you know you have there's um are there a lot of them no but most of them have been heavily fined they they're they're hauled into court and punished. Some are in jail because they simply said, you know, this this guy wants to be called a girl and you didn't do that. And that's a hate crime. And that's against the law. And you're going to suffer the penalty. This is going on not far from us right across that border. So if you don't think you can come here, I got news for you. It's already here. You talk about you talk to some of those bakers out in the Midwest there who are being attacked by the uh, bake me a cake, you bigot crowd. You know, anyway, I I think I saw Liz, you had your hand up. So.
1: I was listening to um, uh, some question and answer on EWTN uh, coming in, and they were talking about the tribulations, mm-hmm. uh, the what do you call it? The, um, the 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 group of people that said the the, the forty four thousand or whatever it is forty four thousand. Yeah, you know how the the the, the, the left behind series or whatever it is. Well, and they yeah, whoever yeah. that group of people are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um there was and the response the the commentator gave he said no that's not scripturally correct. Yeah, right. He said, he said the Catholic Church doesn't teach that. He said if Christ <laughs> is, had to go through some through something before he got his yeah. his glorified body. It yeah. Makes you think that we don't, won't have to go through something mm-hmm. <laughs> before we get ours. So you know yeah, we, we all have gonna, to go
0: through it. we're gonna all be raptured. Yeah. We're gonna good.
1: yeah we we all gonna have to go through <laughs> something before we get our glorified body. So yeah. you know uh-huh. that the 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 scriptures no uh never taught that, mm-hmm. and neither yeah. did any of the church fathers ever uh, say that a Christian or uh or doesn't have to go through some kind of tribulation uh before we get yeah. our glorified body and i did it made me think about what mm-hmm. you're saying we all gonna have to go through something before mm-hmm. we receive. If we if we do, uh, you know, um, live according to what the the will of God asks us to live, yeah. uh, we're going to go through something because of it. Uh, and and for us to think that we're not is foolish. So yeah, do you, you know, think you're
0: a better preacher than Jesus? You know.
1: Yes, but <laughs>
0: you, you can't just sugarcoat it. If he couldn't sugarcoat it
1: and when he did tell them you know you, this wonderful gift is going to be yours yeah. Yeah. you know i have this they said you're crazy and I walked away so um you know and then the the the, the ceremony we went through at church mm-hmm. um on sunday to um uh, the sacred heart of jesus through the Uh, through Mary, Mm -hmm. and that one, the lines that we had to read, the humbling ourselves, this humble offering of our slavery in honor of, and in union with the subjection of, I keep reading that over and over and over again, Monsignor, I was so glad that you gave the teaching on the word slavery, um, so we could stop being all that thinking we all that in a bag of chips over the word um get over ourselves so that we could see that to be a slave to god almighty was such an honorable thing and 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 a humble humble thing um it was it was it's just something I, I just need to read it every single day monsignor and yeah. the one, and that one thing about being a worm oh my Jesus
0: <laughs> I'm a worm and no man all right so listen um I think we're basically you know agreed that, but now I I think that this may sound kind of a heavy but remember the apostles for example when they were persecuted rejoiced that they were deemed worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. And so what we want to try to find as Christians is a joyful acceptance of the kind of suffering that will come for the gospel. Paul and Barnabas said to the people, um, it is only through much trial and tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we know we're on the way and um, that we don't belong to the world when the world does turn to us and persecute us. Now, look, that doesn't mean, you know, it's always enjoyable. You know, we're not doing some sadomasochistic stuff here. This is, um, but there is a, a joyful acceptance, though. Jesus says, blessed are you or happy are you. When you're persecuted and hated and called all kinds of things because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven will be great. So we want to not just be overly morose, but this is not the way most Christians think today. Oh, Any, any little suffering comes our way and uh, we're moaning and, And me too, look, I'm not saying I'm, hey, see, so again, we're very quick to complain. And yet, over and over again, the Lord told us that we would suffer if we're going to be faithful, if we're faithful, that we're going to suffer. So if you don't have any, you're not getting scuffed up and beat up at all by this world, you might want to wonder, am I too friendly with this world? A friend of the world is an enemy to God, says the book of James, you know. Um, Okay, well, let's move into the next Chapter, um but um we want to, uh, as I say, just we've become individually to some degree, but certainly collectively in the church rather soft, and everything's kind of therapeutic. Let's help people to feel better. It's, it's sometimes you got to part of healing is to feel worse for a while, uh, and then, then you then you get better. You know, like think of physical therapy or something. You see what I'm saying? You know, or surgery. You know, you got to feel worse before you get, get a, before you get better, okay? And there's something that we've lost in the way yeah. what we. It's not so much what we say, but what we don't say, all right? Okay. Now, <clears throat> I know that uh, once, of course, um, once of course we find out that, uh, that uh, once again, the Holy Fathers finds out what the Jewish people aren't going to go along. That Israel has said, uh-uh, we're going to war. Oh that he's oh well i guess maybe we'll just leave them alone I mean, do you think that no you know he's not backing down here now there comes this very interesting introduction of this character called Akior in chapter 5 who gives us a very important principle that with god these people are too strong to beat but let's get them separated from their god through sin and their ours so let's read this uh, now. Um, Holofernes is now encamped down in the Judean desert, wanting to take Jerusalem. So the first thing he does is he summons a kind of a council. Was he's basically asking for some military intelligence. Uh, you know, give, give me a, what, are, what are their strengths. And, you know, so here, I'll just read it. Uh, verse one of chapter five. It was reported to Holofernes, the ranking general of the Assyrian forces, that the Israelites were readying for battle and had blocked the mountain passes and fortified their high hilltops and placed roadblocks in the plains. In great anger, he summoned all the rulers of Moab and the governors of Ammon. As if to say, what do you mean they're not going to just roll over while I drive a tank over them, you know? All right. Um, Verse three. And he said to them, now tell me, you Canaanites, what sort of people this is that, that lives in that hill country? What cities do they inhabit? How large is their force? In what does their power and strength consist? And who has set himself up as their king and leader of their army? Why have they alone, of all the inhabitants of the West, refused to come out and meet me? Now, on the surface, this is just a kind of a military intelligence operation, right? Um, Facts about the enemy are being gathered. But in terms of spiritual warfare, I want you to note something. Demons are pretty... Pretty, they're not omniscient, but they're very observant. They know your strengths and they know your struggles. Mine too, and not just ours individually, but collectively the church. Uh, they study our weaknesses and our strengths very carefully and they craft a strategy based on this, all right? It's not a one-size-fits-all battle plan, it's carefully crafted. But I also want you to notice how Poto has no imagination. Just like perhaps we didn't when we went into Vietnam when the Russians went into Afghanistan and uh, they, we just thought, well, we'll just blow them up. We'll just tank, you know, run our tanks over their stuff, and you know, bring our aircraft carriers out and sh- saber rattle, and we'll bomb the hell out of them, and and then we'll just easily win. And that's a very conventional way of thinking. And the race does not always go to the swift. the 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 war is not always won by the big army. You you've heard me with these remnant theology things in the past. Remember the. Story of Gideon and so on. He, uh, with an army of 300, he defeats an army of 60,000, you know? And I will be with you, says the Lord. So we talked earlier about these tactical, little tactical parties and operations that people who were very outnumbered. Now, go to Vietnam, for example. A very sad reality about that war was that. In North Vietnam, anyway, the, the women and the children became combatants. They, they, they also took up arms um, so that when, when the soldiers would go in, they, 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 they ignored women and children to their peril. These women and children um, would, uh, would also turn. Now, I'm not saying, you know, uh, we are therefore free to just wipe out everything in sight. But this is the kind of stuff that people who are desperate and are outnumbered resort to. And they're good at it because they they have something to really protect and, and, and want to survive. And so, again, as I say, the they were incredibly ingenious in the ways they brought our army down, our huge war machine, uh, arguably the biggest, greatest war machine in the world at that time and brought us to our knees. We couldn't win. And um, we finally just left. And the same thing happened to the, as I say, to the. Um, you know, the soviets in uh, in um, afghanistan and uh, the same seems to be happening now uh in ukraine all right enough said but just want you to see he's thinking I, I, how well i mean i have more troops i have bigger whatever you know i have bigger tools more weapons uh well that but again Holofernes, the race doesn't always go to the swift or the best armed you know sometimes it's to those who can in very small tactical ways inflict death by a thousand cuts. Okay? Now, um, here comes now this guy named Achior, and listen very carefully to what he says, and tell me if you don't see this going on today in the church. Then Achior, the leader of all the Ammonites, said to him, My lord, please listen to a report from your servant. I will tell you the truth about this people that lives in the hill country near here. And no lie shall escape your servant's lips. Verse 6. These people are descendants of the Chaldeans. They formerly lived in Mesopotamia, where they did not wish to follow the gods of their ancestors there, who were in the land of the Chaldeans. Uh, So since they abandoned the way of their ancestors and worshipped the God of heaven, the God whom they had come to know, their ancestors then expelled them from the presence of their gods. And they fled to Mesopotamia and lived there a long time. Now he's talking about the remote history, of Israel, going all the way back to the time of Abraham and his family. So they had been living down in Ur of the Chaldees, in other words, among the Chaldeans. And then coming to know the God of heaven, Yahweh, they were cast out and they went up all the way up to the north uh, to live um, in um, um, not uh, to, um, Haran up there, way up in the north near the Black Sea. And so uh, they're way up there. So that's that's what he's describing here. Okay, now, um, verse nine, their God told them to leave the place where they were living and then go to the land of Canaan. So that's when Abraham, not knowing where, but God told him to set out to a place that I will show you. So he left then Haran uh, with, his, with his family and, and went down into the land of Canaan, which is the Holy Land, okay? And they, there they settled and grew very rich in gold and silver and great abundance of livestock, But later a famine gripped the land of Canaan, so they went down to Egypt, and they stayed there as long as they found sustenance. And it was there that they grew into such a great multitude that the number of their people could not be counted. The king of Egypt, however, then rose up against them and shrewdly forced them into labor at brickmaking, and they were oppressed and made into slaves. But they cried out to their God, and he struck the whole land of Egypt with plagues for which there was no remedy. So the Egyptians drove them out. And then God dried up the Red Sea before them and led them along the route to Sinai and Kadesh Barnea. uh, Barnea. And they uh, they drove out all the inhabitants of the wilderness and they settled in the land of the Amorites. And by their strength, they destroyed all the Heshbonites, crossed the Jordan and took possession of all the hill country. They drove out before them the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Shechemites, and all the Gergesites, and uh, and they lived there among they lived there a long time all right now before we go any further though a scoundrel uh a cure here is doing something very important he's recounting the story of israel do you know the story do you know your story do you know the story of the church Do you know the story of israel do you know it i mean it's been recounted there but you know, what What do we do when we come to church? The very first half, we celebrate the liturgy of the word. What are we doing? We're telling the story. And basically, every Sunday, the story is the same, that God created everything out of nothing, and he loved his people, and we, his people, have often been rebellious and sinful, and God would have to sometimes punish us and bring us uh, to, you know, to repent. Uh, but he never gave up on us and even when we were taken into exile and other things god never gave up and he always brought us back and so therefore again we are strong when we stay close to god and uh when we sin he corrects us uh finally he he, he continued to send us prophets and he spoke to us of his truth giving us the commandments he brought us prophets and prepared us and then is the great messiah jesus came who came to r- remove us from the grip of the devil and restore our life to us so that when we die, we would no longer go to a comatose place called Sheol, but to glory. And so this is our story, namely to quote the old hymn, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Or another song says, I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in, and then a little light from heaven filled my soul. See? He bathed my heart in love and wrote my name above and just a little talk with Jesus made me whole, you know, so this is our story. Now, you got to know the story and the story, like any uh, story, has suffering and difficulties and setbacks, but ultimately has victory. By the way, I'm going to just check my Bible here. Uh, Oh, yeah, it's still there. And the last page, it says Jesus wins. Um. hmm kind of nice to know the story. And yet what happens is we forget the story. You you know, we forget. You forgot. You forgot. Jesus says, remember, but all through the Old Testament, God the Father says to the people, you forgot. You forgot how I led you out. You forgot. You forgot. And we're always turning to some other lesser thing, a God or a, uh, you know, a, a, a corporation or a government or something to save us. I don't mean that there's no role for us to cooperate with human structures, but the point being is that the ultimate salvation cannot come from those sources. We we have to turn to God and stay close to him, and, and again, uh, this is our story, and when we do that, God will save us and set us free, all right? Um, so, you've got to know the story, and that there's ultimate victory waiting, and again, Beyond even just the biblical narrative, you've heard my little missus before, you know, but the church is some 2000 years old and well, where's the oppressive Roman government now that's gone and we're still here where, where, where is Caesar he's gone, Uh, you know where where are the uh, many others the uh, these these uh, many um, barbarian tribes that sought to destroy the church and so on. Well, we converted them. And we're still here preaching the same gospel. Well, well, where, where's Napoleon who would destroy the church? Where is the, the Soviet Socialist Republic? They're all gone. And we're still here preaching the same gospel. See, you got you understand? You're on the winning team. Sometimes it doesn't feel like the winning team. But you know, you got to get with the program. You know, it's just dumb to know how the game will end. And then put your bet on anything but the winning team. And yet that's what we often do. We're that stupid. Um, and, well, and we throw in our game with the with, with the losing team. What a stupid thing. And so again, we have to uh, know the story. This outsider, Akior, knows the history of the Jewish people, that their God rescued them time and time again. And he's going to go on to say, this God is a God who saves. He's a God who is strong, and we cannot beat these people unless we undermine that relationship. All right, so let's read on, okay? Um, now, he's, this is still Achior talking. He said, as long as the Israelites did not sin in the sight of their God, they prospered. For their God, who hates wickedness, was with them. But when they abandoned the way that he had prescribed for them, they were utterly destroyed by frequent wars. And they were finally taken as captive into foreign lands. That's the Babylonian exile, right? The temple of their God was burnt to the ground, raised to the ground, and their cities were occupied by their enemies. But now they have returned to their God, and they've just come back from the diaspora where they were scattered. And they've reclaimed Jerusalem where their sanctuary is, and they've settled again in the hill country because it was unoccupied. Goes on to say, so so now my master, Aachior says, and Lord... If these people are in are inadvertently at fault, or if they are sinning against their God, and if we can verify this offense of theirs, then we will be able to go up and conquer them. But if they are not a guilty nation, let my Lord keep his distance. Otherwise, their Lord and God will shield them, and they will and we will be mocked in the eyes of all the earth. Wow! So you you see, you see first of all what he's saying here when when when. When the people stay close to God and follow his commandments, they are strong. When they fall away from this, they grow weak and they're easily conquered. And in fact, they were. So basically, sin makes us stupid and weak, right? And um, Isaiah says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. So that's Isaiah 7 and verse 9. If you do not stand strong in your faith, you will not stand at all. And so when is the church strong? When we're staying close to the gospel, when we're listening to God's laws and his teachings and we're insisting on them, right? And we're teaching them without compromise and we're not watering them down, you know, and so on. Um, That's when we're strong, okay? But when we turn away and we want the world to love us and all our welcome and all this kind of stuff where there's no real preaching of the gospel or the gospel is watered down or set aside because, you know, we want to be liked. We grow weak and we start to be easily conquered. Is that not in fact, you know, what's going on? Our, our pews are growing emptier. People, most of our Catholics have lost their way. They've been bought out by the evil one. To quote, Remember, did I tell you the story about the council member here in DC uh, who said to me, they're more my sh- sheep than yours? But uh, I'll just tell you again, I, I told this story before. Some years ago, this is probably about, 12, 15 years ago now, but uh, there was some some gay marriage bill or something in D.C., and the Cardinal said, I want you to go talk to the council members and tell them why the church opposes this. So I went and I had a couple of council members to talk to in the D.C. City Council, and one of them was David Catania. Now, I knew David Catania. I'd worked with him on providing. We, he helped me to get the uh, rec center that built at St. Thomas More that we built when I was there, a $5.5 million community center that we use for the neighborhood. Anyway, uh, so, I mean, I knew him, and we had mutual respect, even though we had a lot of differences. He was uh, openly gay and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, at the end of the day, I went and I gave the spiel why we oppose gay gay marriage to a guy who's openly gay. <laughs> but anyway, you know, I, anyway, I, I did my job. And uh, he said, Father Father Pope, you and I have been working. We, we know each other. We respect each other. And I said, I, I want you to tell your cardinal something for me. Um. He claims to represent the Catholics of this District of Columbia. He does not. I do. Because they agree with me. They do not agree with him on this topic. They are more my sheep than they are his. You have serious problems in your church. Your leaders claim to speak for your people, but they don't. I do. They agree with me. They don't agree with you. Um, I say this to you in respect, but you have a problem in your church. And um you know, you're easy to divide. And he says, that's exactly what we've done. So um, we're, you're not even a factor. The Catholic Church is not a factor. We, you are not a political threat. I'm a politician. I've done polls and surveys. I know what Catholics are thinking. And they agree with me. They don't agree with you. They're with me. They're not with you. I'm not afraid of you or your church because you're weak. You're ineffective. You haven't, you haven't kept your, you know, your people together. Okay, They belong to me, not to you. And I mean, I I thank him for that. I said, you know, I have to largely say, I think I agree. I think, you know, any survey will just show you, I mean, most Catholics don't even go to mass, right? 17% of Catholics now go to mass on Sunday. I mean, so you see the idea when we are weak and we fall away from preaching the faith, we're easily divided and conquered and the enemy just comes in and just makes... Spoil It makes a spoil. How many, how many churches are we closing nationwide? How many seminaries? How many hospitals have we closed? How many Catholic schools have we closed? Those Catholic schools that we still have, some of them are not only not Catholic, they're anti-Catholic, like Georgetown. I mean, this is where we are as a church today. We've been largely invaded and conquered. Now, not entirely. The church is indefectible. But at the end of the day, we have been sorely, sorely reduced. And So this is what's happened. And uh, it all goes back to clergy and and other church leaders like parents and other educators, catechists, who decided that preaching the gospel was too inconvenient. It cost too much. It was something that they watered down and um, were not serious about. And most Catholics do not keep the commandments and not all of them. They don't break all of them, but they break many of them. And they claim that it's not only okay, but in fact, it's something to celebrate. So that's kind of where the church is today. Now, the church herself is indefectible. I gave you my little 2,000-year history. But that doesn't mean we'll always be strong or powerful or able to just, you know, do what we want or need. So Achior's little analysis of the Israelites is the same. He says, as long as they stay close to their God and they follow his ways, they're almost unconquerable because he's a strong God. However, if you can get them to break their commandments and make compromises, even if inadvertently, he says... They will grow weak and will be easily conquered. Amen. So you see the vision, right? Um, Yeah. A powerful chapter here. Now, the question then for you and me is, um, what are we going to do? Well, obviously, the number one step is to say, look, I, I need to try my very best to keep the commandments, stay close to God's teachings, confess the true faith. And if I fall short, I need to go to confession I need to stay close to the sacraments. I need to read God's word. I need to take God seriously. Um, And if I do that, I myself and ideally my family uh, will be strong. Um, Even then, you know, we still lose some of our family members to this very huge war machine of a culture that's just like a juggernaut plowing everything we consider sacred under the ground. But um, we, uh, to whatever degree, we can stay strong then uh, we'll, we'll get others to be strong and we'll have to rebuild this thing. And it's going to take time. It's going to take time. So my brother came to me many years ago. He only, you know, they have nine children now. That's, and by the way, they're done. His wife uh, is in her late forties and uh, it's are uh, they're done. I mean, they ain't gonna, they, they, let's just say she had the ovarian, uh, not cancer, but cyst and then she had to have, surgery so anyway there but nine kids but he said you know i just don't understand this whole world seems to be going crazy and what am i supposed to do and i said get married first as you have um have lots of babies raise them catholic and set them loose and then they'll have children and hopefully raise them catholic and set them loose and we just have to rebuild this thing from this from the start okay yeah all right so Again, all of these are just some thoughts about AQR's re- reflections here. Pretty powerful stuff, huh? Yep. Now, of course, all the people uh, standing around um, uh, Collofernes, the general, said, "Oh, that's a great insight." Do you think Do you think that's how they reacted to this? Heck, no. Let's read what what their reaction is. <laughs> now, the verse twenty-two is where I am. Now, when AQR finished these sayings, all the people standing round about the tent murmured. And the officers of Holofernes and all the inhabitants of the seacoast and of Moab alike said that he should be cut to pieces. We are not afraid of these Israelites or their God. You know, they said they are a powerless people, incapable of strong defense. Therefore, let us attack master Holofernes, and they will become fodder for your great army. So they scoff, they scoff. But the heir, Achior, has spoken rightly. Hmm? When Israel had God for a partner, she's strong and difficult to defeat. But when Israel wanders afar from God, they are weak and easily defeated. The scoffer should review history and see that Pharaoh could not withstand them, neither could the Canaanites. <laughs> I have a misspelling in my notes the Jebusites. Uh, instead of saying Jebusites, I said Jesuits. Other tribes could not withstand them, and uh, God led them into the promised land. And um, the, the, the race does not always go to the swift. And there are different ways of being strong in a conflict. Um, for example, let me just give you an example that I, I like to say, even with all this crazy feminism and stuff that we've had, um, that men and women are strong, but they're strong in different ways. Women have a certain strength. Um, that's different than the way men are strong. And I think that we need to, you start to see this here too, that you've got this huge war machine that's strong in the conventional worldly sense, you know, they just just have planes and tanks and guns and missiles and whatever you can imagine. Well, that's one way to be strong, but there's another way to be strong, to be crafty, to be tactical, to be, see, so you've got these two different approaches and how are they going to, how is Israel going to conquer? Well, I told you this end of the story already, they will beat this war machine with one widow and her slave girl. Okay? So these scoffers are erring. These weak and powerless people are not weak and powerless. They have God. They also have their own tactics and their own ways of dealing with this. And at the end of the day, it's going to be like Luke Skywalker, you know, saying Look, I, can't, I can't wear all this crazy armor. I mean, I'll, I can't follow this computer. He throws the computer aside and just flies the, what is it called? The Millennium Falcon? The that's Anyway, whatever the ship is, he flies it into this groove and hits the Death Star, blows the thing up, Um, not with any help from a computer or any. He just he just flies in on his own. So, again, um, the race does not always go to the swift. There are different ways of being strong in conflict. For example, David demonstrated this before Goliath. You know, they put all this armor on him, put a sword in his hand. I mean, he says, I can't wear this stuff. I've never trained for this. He says, let me fight the way I know how to fight. And he took seven smooth stones and his slingshot and went and knocked Goliath down on the first shot, right? Um, the scoffers who are scoffing right now uh, at what Achior has said, look only to military might, but they forget that a small mobile spiritual force who know the land can inflict great harm and win the day. The same is true to spiritual warfare. Some people will ask, well, what good is prayer and fasting? Some see suffering as only bad. But they forget the wisdom of the cross. The apparent loss of the crucifixion was the very means by which Christ conquered. God's ways are very often paradoxical, okay? My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts, see? So you start to see that this is a very interesting book, isn't it? At least I hope you're as interested as I am. very important, powerful reminders here, you know, we're up against a big machine. Don't be so impressed by the bigness. Bigness doesn't always win the day. Sometimes small, movable, tactical things, right? They win the day, right? You can bring all these tanks in and they can't maneuver because the field is muddy, but you bring in, you know, some guy on a horse and they can get through there and, you know, you know, you get the idea. It's um, It's a very important thing to remember. Now, in the next chapter, which we won't do today, We'll start to see how Achor will have something to suffer for having spoken like this. How dare you even think we can't conquer these little people? We are the I am. We represent Nebuchadnezzar. He's like a god. I am Holofernes. I have the big war machine. They're small, you know. That's a bunch of pride, and and that's not going to win the day. Okay, and so for us in spiritual warfare, sometimes we have to understand that just doing our daily duty. So I told my brother what to do. I know what God told me to do. He says, look, I've given you a vineyard, man. See, I go to the garden and I say, the whole world's gone crazy. He says, he says, Carlito, that's above your pay grade. I gave you a parish. I gave you uh, some other ministries like Bible study, online stuff, uh, preaching retreats and writing. Do what I told you to do. Keep doing that. And you do your part. It might not seem like much, but it's what I want you to do. And my brother's raising his kids. Both my brothers are raising their kids. And um, uh, this is what's going to ultimately have to win the day. All those little things that we do that will add up. And I think that in spiritual warfare, we don't always have to have some big, huge bomb to go off to change the world for the better. Um, we can uh, we can do it in small ways. I, I'll just give you one final example, and then I'll get questions and we'll wrap up for tonight, which is, you I've told you these things before, but, you know, when the church has been in trouble in the past the, the lord very seldom did he ever bring the church through a crisis by some meeting of bishops you know usually like let's go to the 14th century where the church was in trouble uh, the popes were not in rome they were hiding out in avignon it was just a mess and what did god do well he didn't bring a commission of bishops together he brought all of a sudden this weird guy named Francis of Assisi starts walking around preaching to animals. And people said, well, that's kind of weird. Let's go listen. And, um, and then uh, Dominic, St. Dominic was doing the same thing. They founded what they call begging, begging orders, mendicant orders, where they would beg for their food and preach uh, in the streets. And um, over there in Italy, you had uh, Catherine of Siena. You know, just one person here, one person there, just small little things. He said, well, what will that do? Well, it all caught fire. And it, uh, it, you know, brought a great reform in the church at that time, you see. And I could give you countless other examples. But again, it's, it's God has his ways and things up his sleeves that we don't know much about, but they're there. And he's going to work those things on his time and in his way. And he asks us to play part of a role. Fundamentally, listen to what I'm saying. Keep my commandments. Stay close to the sacraments. You know, read my word, teach it to your kids, get married, stay married, raise them up, set them loose. And, uh, you know, and for all those other little gaps and things you think you can't overcome, well, leave them to me. But I will perhaps solve this in a way you you you'll be surprised. Okay, so spiritual warfare. All right. That's what we're talking about here. And we've learned a lot of things today, I think. huh? Right. So. Comments, questions, rebuttals? And then we'll end. I right. just,
1: wanted to, I just wanted to offer opportunity for anybody who likes audio books or anything of that nature to listen to some of this um, in an audio book. It sounds like a movie. Um, when you listen to it that way, uh the book of you. It's, it's very moving. I mean, somebody is uh, telling the story in an mm-hmm. audio book. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's oh, it scared me to death, Montaigne. <laughs> Some of this Old Testament stuff. Yeah, yeah. I was driving, listening to the Old Testament. Yeah. I said, "Oh my God, these people did what? <laughs> God did what to them?" <laughs> yeah. Go on to confession side. Yeah, I
0: know you're right. Well, I know you're right. It's, it it was uh, things were tough all over, you know. <laughs>
1: the, things been tough all over. <laughs> but uh, listen to it. Uh, you you'll see the parallels and God's hand working. We're stupid. All right. Stupid.
0: <laughs> all right. Yeah, I think you're, you're mentioning you, you can hear the book of Judith on, on like an audio book or something. It's is probably worth. Yeah, man. good. Or you could just do like we're doing. Just stab away at it with me today. You know, but yeah, if you want to hear the whole book, you might find it's a very does make for a good narrative.
1: It, they're free apps. You can do that free. They have a lot of free ones.
0: Yeah, cool. All right. Well, listen, we'll uh, continue next week. Um, and um, yeah, we'll get into uh, how Achilles responds, and, and then eventually we're going to actually see Judas step on the scene here, but uh, in a couple more chapters. But uh, and then once that happens, the book kind of rapidly, you know, moves to its conclusion. So we're um, we're still building all the tension, building it all up uh, for the uh, for our hero to step on the scene. Okay. So uh, would someone like to finish
1: us with a prayer?
0: All right, well, Liz, you've been so talking, and why don't you go ahead and talk to God for us right now?
1: You're the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father God, we thank you and praise you, worship you. Thank you for this wonderful evening of study, for wisdom, and for knowledge and truth. Mm-hmm. But Lord, we ask you to uh, allow all of this to um, marinate in our minds and mm-hmm. our spirit, to allow us to grow in our journey toward you and to apply it in our everyday life so that we can be a better Christ to everyone we meet. And we ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right.
0: Bless you all. and um,
1: All right. Have good. a blessed evening.
0: You too, Bob. Good night,
1: everybody. Oh, it good night. night. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night, Anne. Good night. Good
0: night,
1: Good night, Bobby. Good night, David. Blessings good night, and good night. Nikki. Not night, everybody.
0: Good night, Bye, everybody. Good night, night my good. Good. good night, John Boyd. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Waltons, right? I like it. All righty. So whoever said good night to me, good night to you too, sir. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All righty. See you
1: next week. Good night. Thank you.